they have to wake up every day and say, what part of the American administrative state am I going to destroy today? Not reform, not modify, not tweak, destroy. Fire the bureaucrats, close agencies. Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name is Stephen Edgington. Kevin Roberts is the president of the Heritage Foundation, one of America's most influential conservative think tanks. It's my great pleasure to talk to Mr. Roberts today about the state of conservatism in America. Thank you very much, Kevin, Mr. Roberts. Please for call us. me Kevin. Yes, it's a pleasure um, to be with you, Stephen. What is the Heritage Foundation and what is your aim? As you said, uh, we are the largest politically conservative policy organization in D.C. Uh, to our understanding, we may be the largest in the world, but we don't exist to say we're the largest. And the reason is, to your point of your question, our value proposition, and that is ultimately to restore self-governance and human flourishing to every single American and by extension, every person on the planet. We do that by writing excellent policy analysis. Very importantly, rather than just writing about that anal analysis, we posit solutions and we advocate for those solutions in the nation's capital in D.C., as well as most state capitals. So our work is both at the federal level in the United States, but also at the state level. As such, in our 50-year history, we are known, and we, I say this with no hubris, with, with all humility, because we don't exist to take service or take credit for things. Uh, we believe that we have helped keep America somewhat sane. We look forward to that level of sanity increasing in the next few years. But you come at it from a conservative philosophy, conservative perspective. Unabashedly. How do you assess conservatism in America today? Conservatism today is at once healthier than it's ever been and also fraught with some challenges. And, and obviously, on the surface, that's contradictory, so I'll explain. It's healthier than it's ever been because the emergence of new organizations, new institutions, new leaders on the political right in the United States is unprecedented. I'm often asked, leading what's considered one of the, the legacy conservative organizations in our country, what we think about these new organizations cropping up, we celebrate that. I'm to some extent a historian of the conservative movement, and, and I, I know that our movement philosophically is not as old. It's not as mature as the American left. And one sign of that maturation is the institutional maturation that is taking root, not just in Washington, D.C., but far more importantly, because we're federalist after all. In the United States, we do not like centralized power, especially as conservatives. The point is the emergence of institutions at the state and local level. The movement, however, is fraught with challenges. And those challenges mostly have to do with the collision of conservative policies and ideas with specific political personalities. When I say that, you and your audience rightly start thinking about the, the both the opportunities and the challenges brought by President Trump and his administration. We're very close with President Trump and his administration. Heritage is agnostic politically. That is to say, we exist to serve any conservative leader. But the point is, President Trump, by force of personality, by his level of courage, not unlike what we saw in the United States in Reagan, and not unlike what you in Britain saw in Lady Thatcher, has changed the movement. And in particular, what he's done is tell longtime conservatives who believe that you need to move a little more slowly, that in our case, Washington is on fire, Rome is burning, and that we have to be creative, we have to be courageous, we have to be fearless in taking on the establishment. And, and that, of course, is philosophically, to wrap up here, Stephen, a little challenging for conservatives because... You know, our, our intellectual godfather, if you will, is not just Edmund Burke, but the American Russell Kirk, very much a Burkean. And Russell Kirk would say conservatives are open to change, but at a prudent pace. Trumpism moves at a certain pace, which, to be clear, we celebrate at Heritage. We think this pace is justified, but not everyone in the American conservative movement has adjusted to that. In other words, as I like to say, they don't yet know what time it is. And what I mean by saying that is they don't yet know that the American dream for most Americans seems elusive. The heart of American conservatism needs to be allowing Americans to grab hold of that in terms of economic and social security, but also to recognize that the root of all of these problems is that Washington has gotten too large. It's gotten too powerful. It has overreached in our lives. And therefore, to conclude on an optimistic, a hopeful note about American conservatism, heritage's job is to take these somewhat new tactics 
and merge them into the longstanding philosophy of conservatism, I'm happy to report a year out from our presidential election that that's going well. Is it fair to say that historically the Heritage Foundation has been seen as a more establishment or conservative institution? And I know that some populist Trump supporting Republicans, whatever you want to call them, um, have criticized Heritage as being a sort of rhino Republican in name only institution. Do you think that's fair? It's no longer fair if it ever was fair. I've, I've been at Heritage only two years and, and, and always a fan, someone who depended on Heritage. It is true to acknowledge the, the question that especially three or so years ago, we would hear charges about Heritage as being Conservatism Inc. or a legacy institution. And and you know me well enough at this point in our friendship to know that uh, I don't run away from those challenges, rather I run to them as all of us at Heritage. Having not been at Heritage then, I don't know how accurate those were, but what I can tell you that's not true today. And, and the reason it's not true today is the 300 plus people I have the benefit and privilege of working with, all of my colleagues at Heritage, are people who wake up every morning and they try to figure out, not just during business hours, but also in evening hours, in the times they travel the world and the country, what each of them asks this question every single day, Stephen, what can I do today in selfless service to my fellow Americans to improve their self-governance and their flourishing? Being inside Heritage now for two years, I know that no one there is beset with establishment thinking. No one is beset with legacy thinking. And perhaps the best way I can offer to justify that, to explain that, is for you to go ask when you're visiting D.C. any member of the establishment what they think about Heritage, and they will criticize us. And I celebrate that because that tells me that we're over the target every single day. Do you think that Donald Trump is a conservative? And I suppose the reason I ask that is because there are some criticisms of him from the right. For example, his views on abortion are mixed, to say the least, in terms of an American perspective, That's conservative fair. perspective, and um, particularly on vaccines. Again, there are issues with that. Um, and historically, he's taken money from the, or he's donated to the Democrats. So um, there are some people who say that he isn't really ideologically conservative. He may say some conservative things. Um, as you say, he talks about the deep state. He talks about draining the swamp, etc., building the wall. So on immigration, he's conservative. But um, do you think he's ideologically consistent in that way? Is he a conservative? You know, I, I know President Trump. I've come to know him personally in the last few years. I admire him. And and so I'll, I'll answer in two ways. The first is a little bit of a personal insight. He's a conservative man. Um, you look at his kids. You can, you can judge a man or a woman by their children. A very impressive family. He's conservative in how he conducts his life. Uh, he's a very sober man, literally and figuratively. But secondly, to what I think is the heart of your question, that's the sort of the political professional side, Trump is someone who has some inconsistencies in his conservative philosophy. Most political leaders have. So what I mean by that is you could look at most leading American conservatives and from the Heritage Foundation, which is seen as sort of the arbiter of someone's purism as a conservative, very few of them are quote unquote perfect, right? And that's because of the necessity of actually governing. And sometimes we have to, to give up on some tactics, hopefully never our principles. But as an intellectual, if I may, I would say to the extent I am an intellectual, I would say that Trump is very much in the vein of populism, of, of populist conservatism. There's a, a great writer, Wilmore Kendall, who's underappreciated in American conservative circles, who is known as the populist conservative. Uh, he, he wrote uh, in the middle part of the 20th century. And what, what Kendall tied or what he connected was modern American conservatism to the conservatism of our founding. And Trump is very much in that vein, which is to say there are conservative principles and yet there's a certain impatience he has with process, which on its face may not seem very conservative and, and perhaps it isn't. And then to, to sort of compound this, this dilemma about Trump, you see what he did during COVID, which uh, in hindsight, a growing number of American conservatives are critical of as they should be. I was critical at the time. I was one of the few conservative leaders I was leading the Texas Public Policy Foundation, who was arguing that uh, we shouldn't have the lockdowns, we shouldn't be mandating vaccines, we shouldn't be trusting Anthony Fauci. Trump made a mistake in doing that. I don't say that gratuitously, he knows that, but at Heritage, we call balls and strikes. And, and that was definitely one where he missed the mark. I don't think that that undermines the clear conservative record he has and what I would presume would be 
a rather conservative record if he wins a second term. You say that he's a conservative man in his life. To some, that they, they may be surprised by that because he's maybe not particularly religious. I don't know what's in his head, but he doesn't seem particularly religious. Um, and he, the way that he speaks about women sometimes in his kind of vulgar language would imply that he's not quite as socially conservative as one would expect. So I just I just want to ask about that, pick you up sure. on that. No, that's, that, no, that's a fair observation. I understand why someone would say that. I, but being a man of the faith, I, I've had my reservations um, as well. What I meant was that he's conservative, not a saint. That is to say, the way he goes about raising his kids. Being someone, myself, who's often considered not just a conservative leader, but perhaps a, a leader of, of the, the religious right, there are, there are strains there. But uh, my Christian faith also tells me not to judge. And, and I can just tell you, having been with him many times personally, having spoken to him recently, he's a man who's somewhere inside that soul uh, has a deep love, not just for American free people, but, but also for the truth. I want to talk a bit about tactics in terms of how the Heritage Foundation is trying to um, achieve its aims and achieve its goals um, practically. Uh, there's been much talk about the deep state in America. In the UK, we call it the blob. Um, where we you do have, too. Yeah, well, maybe you do in America as well. And, you know, you, basically these institutions, these government institutions and big business and um, even the church in many ways have been taken over by a kind of left-wing ideology and left-wing ideologues in, in, in many uh, cases. How does the Heritage Foundation deal with this huge problem facing conservatives? You know, we used to tolerate them, which is to say we could mostly ignore them, we could build a better plan to get around them. Uh, that's that's the genesis of what we call our Project 2025, which is to completely dismantle the American administrative state. But more and more, and I mean this figuratively, unfortunately I have to issue that caveat because of how the radical left is, more and more figuratively, we just punch them in the nose. That is to say, the blob, and you, you Brits understand it well because there's a very close corollary in the United States, unfortunately. The blob exists to crowd out not just our power, but also to undermine our very rights and freedoms. And the Heritage Foundation should not exist if we're not willing to punch the blob in the nose. And so the more that we have done that over the last two years, and we've done it because the stakes are so high, the more the, the blob you know, chatters and, and criticizes us about doing so, that tells us we have to continue to do that for this reason. In the same way that your countrymen, especially outside London, are very frustrated, not just about what they would say is the economy or politics generally. What they're saying is they're frustrated because the elites and the blob not only don't get it, but they're actively undermining their self-governance. Americans believe exactly the same thing. So if you get outside Washington, D.C. and most state capitals, you talk to regular folks, they have the same frustration, which is that the blob is not only wrong, they're actively with their elitism really undermining Americans' ability to live out the American dream. This is the point, Stephen. The Heritage Foundation, more than anything else it does, exists to advocate for the everyday American inside Washington, D.C., and the blob hates that we do. But I want, again, I want to go back to this tactical point, because not only is the blob undermining American conservatism, but it's, uh, I, I think um, there's a democra democra democratic deficit. Because if you vote for a politician who says they're going to do one thing, and then the administrative state prevents him from doing that or does the opposite, then how can you say that we live in a proper democracy? So you talk, you briefly mentioned about this 2025 project about dismantling uh, the administrative state. Maybe you can talk a bit more about that. Sure. So is it is it the case that we need to just simply shut down uh, the FBI and big institutions which have been taken over by the left? Or is there some other way of reforming it uh, in a different way? I appreciate the follow-up. I'll, I'll focus on the tactics. Project 2025 for us I think for the entire conservative movement, is the most important tactic. It's the most important plan for defeating the blob. And the reason is that on January 20th, 2025, which is the inauguration day for the next president, we believe at Heritage that a conservative, whether it's President Trump or someone else in the field, will replace President Biden, thank goodness. And it isn't enough for whoever that is to govern conservative tactically they have to wake up every day and say, what part of the American administrative state am I going to destroy today? Not reform, not modify, not tweak, destroy. Fire the bureaucrats, close agencies. End as is, is, is my pet project, the U.S. Department of Education. As I've said in American media this year, 
There is, I believe, as a conservative, a role for a federal bureau of investigation. I don't think there's a role for the current one. It is proven not just in how it's treated President Trump, but heck, for, for people like me, Latin mass loving Catholics, where they have seated FBI agents in the pews in our churches. It is time, as I said, to select all, delete the federal code for the FBI and start from scratch. All of that to say that tactically, there has to be an unprecedented season in the history of the conservative movement, which is that we are willing to be on offense against the administrative state every day. That's why we put this plan together. That plan, if I may, because it speaks to the tactics, involves basically the entirety of the conservative movement. So whoever the next president is, he or she is going to take this plan. Of course, they're going to make their decisions. We're not being presumptuous about who ultimately the boss is here, but they're going to make the decisions on the policies, the executive orders, peeling back the regulations, but most of all, the people. And that's where I personally put a lot of time. Let me add this second point, if I may, because it's related. It isn't enough for American conservatives in terms of tactics to just focus on Washington, D.C. The overreach of the blob is so bad that it has seeped into our state capitals. It has also seeped into our county seats and to our school boards. And so Heritage has become emphatic about encouraging Americans to be involved, not just in Project 2025 in Washington, but in their state capitals, in their county seats, their school boards, their library boards. Let me conclude this point on a hopeful tone, in a hopeful tone. And that is in this decade, the 2020s, I think we're going to get consecutive terms of conservative presidents. I think we're going to win back the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. I think we're going to control the majority of governorships and state legislatures. If those men and women don't have the backbone, like Lady Thatcher, like President Reagan, to stand up to the blob and to destroy it, we will lose America. Every tactic has to be oriented around that goal. So we might see another Coolidge era, a sort of roaring 20s, um, hopefully. Uh, let's talk a bit about this at the state level. I think that's really interesting because you say um, the blob has sort of, uh, it's not just impacting the federal politics, it's also impacting kind of more local politics. Has has there been examples that you can point to where conservatives have successfully tackled the so-called blob? Um, are there certain states, are there, uh, or, even, or even more local than that, where um, where conservatives can learn from the successes successes that they've had? Well, what an excellent question. Yes, this will be a, a, a not an exhaustive list because thankfully there are so many examples. Of course, I'm a I'm an adopted Texan, so I start with the greatest state in the country, Texas. Uh, there, both under Governor Abbott, who's still there, Governor Perry, who preceded him, there's been a dramatic reduction in the regulatory environment in Texas. That sounds very boring and esoteric and think tankish, but Heritage can prove, it has proven in its studies, that that regulatory environment stifles businesses. Not big businesses who often rely on that regulation, but on small businesses, on new businesses. Hence, for seven or eight years in a row, Texas has been uh, judged by by third parties to be the best state to do business. Uh, Californians, folks from Illinois and New York are moving to Texas in record numbers. In the last five years or so, though, we at Heritage think the greatest policy environment for conservative policy has been the state of Florida. And it's one of the reasons that Governor DeSantis is so popular in the country and why he very well could be the conservative standard bearer next year. The reason is that he has put the deep state, the blob, very much in his sights, particularly in education. And so what, what we at Heritage love about what DeSantis and other governors have done, Governor Reynolds in Iowa has done something similar. My governor in the state of Virginia, Governor Youngkin, has begun this, is saying we have to win the fights on tax policy, on regulation, on those related issues. They're very important for business and for economic well-being. But we need to think ahead for 20 or 25 years and ask ourselves, what's the most important policy arena where we should fight? And both Youngkin and DeSantis and, and now Governor Reynolds have said, it's education. And so hopefully you've gotten news here in the UK about Governor DeSantis completely taking over the boards of the universities. He completely took over New College of Florida and installed a completely new board, which has hired a new president. It's a test case for what conservatives need to do to push back on the Gramscian notion that the left should march through our institutions. Governor Yunkin is doing the same thing in Virginia. And so at Heritage, to sum up here, Stephen, it gives us great hope that our governors have gotten it. They realize that state capitals are not this fantasy land for conservatives. You know, I, I once was ignorant enough to think that in places like Austin, Texas and Richmond, Virginia and Tallahassee, Florida, that everything was nirvana. They're not because there's a blob there, too. And at the local level, this is happening with with county commissions and particularly with school boards. It ought to give us as right of center people in the UK and America in particular, great hope 
about not just the next year, but the next 10 or 20 years. I'm so glad you say that because we're, ha- we're at a conference now called ARC, right? And people are talking about these issues. And, and I go to these conferences and they talk and they talk and they talk, but you just think, what, are, what examples of politicians um, you know, have they done to try and reform this stuff? And I think you say DeSantis and others have, you know, have been successful. And I think that's, that's quite hopeful for many conservatives uh, listening to this, um, particularly for those in the UK, because um, we're quite depressed in the UK at the moment. The Conservative Party are very far behind in the polls. I think there have been a lot of failures um, here. So do you think that the UK uh, Conservatives can learn from what some uh, American governors and um, Republicans have done in terms of their own reforms? They do, and 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 you know, as I think I've told you before, of course, we we can learn from y'all too. But um, the what I would recommend that our our friends in Britain learn from us is the not just the courage, but the pace with which these elected leaders have moved. Uh, that may ring a little bit true here, considering the the too short tenure of Prime Minister Truss. Blob took her out, but what I would also encourage our friends in Britain here to think about is to stop whether intentionally or unintentionally, falling prey to what the left wants us to do, which is to divide our movement. They want some of us to be in a tribe focused on economics. They want others of us to be in a tribe focused on social things, uh, others of us to be in a tribe focused on national security, all of the above. That is what wins elections in the United States. And, and the more that I travel to the UK, uh, for which I have a great affinity, as you know, the more I realize in spite of the differences of our countries, we still have more similarities. And that's one of them, which is to say, be ambitious, aspirational, cast a vision. But very importantly, this is the greatest lesson. When you're in power, operate like the rabid conservatives you ran as, because then your people are going to stick with you. Let's talk about 2024. And I'm interested to know why you're so optimistic about that election. It looks like Donald Trump will be the Republican uh, candidate if you look at all the opinion polls. And he lost in 2020 against Joe Biden. Uh, He's seen as a very divisive figure. He puts off a lot of Americans. So why are you so confident about that election? Well, before I get into the the wonderful uh, specifics of your question, let me let me mention sort of our operating thesis at Heritage about 2024. As your prime minister, Winston Churchill, once said, we always trust Americans to get it right once they've tried everything else. And underlying all of those polls is a great frustration by the American people. It's perhaps not as self-reflective as as we ought to be. You know, that's one of our deficiencies as a people. But usually that manifests itself, all kidding aside, in our presidential elections. And and so to move to the polls, President Trump is in the last 10 polls I've seen at uh, seen versus Biden head-to-head, leading in nine of them. And that's not just because of an enduring popularity that President Trump has with the conservative base, but he's holding his own with independence, which is a little surprising given what you said about how divisive he's perceived to be. But Biden is really weak. Uh, the United States is really weak. You have seen that with the withdrawal in Afghanistan. You've seen it with what is a very strange to figure out policy toward Ukraine. Uh, uh, also, a, a, just a PR visit to Israel. Who knows what he believes about China? Uh, and the American economy is terrible. So it's a very weak incumbent. If, in fact, President Biden is the Democrat nominee, which I'm not convinced he will be. But let me make an additional point before I'm sure you follow up with a question on that. The other major Republican contenders, both Governor DeSantis and Ambassador Haley, also are leading President Biden. Hopefully, whoever, whichever one of them is the conservative standard bearer, there will also be coattails. And we believe, in fact, that there could be. The United States House just elected the most conservative speaker in my memory. There may be a more conservative speaker in our history, but I can't think of him. Mike Johnson, who's a friend of ARC, he's, in fact, the very reason I and Heritage are here. Um, He told me about it, is going to be phenomenal, not just as a legislative leader, but as a messenger that, that wonderful Reagan-esque optimism that also doesn't pull any punches about what needs to happen. We don't have that in the United States Senate in our leadership. We have it in Senator Mike Lee, who's here with me, but it's, it's not in the Senate. I think that combination is going to keep the majority in the House. I think Republicans will win a majority in the Senate. And Heritage is going to be what I like to call their accountability partner. That's the other beauty of Project 2025. We have to leave the, the, the electioneering to them. That's not our domain. They win the campaigns. We can help with the messaging. But when they're in office and in the lead up to the getting in office, getting inaugurated, we can help them set priorities, which is what we're going to do. 
Now, I don't know how optimistic you were before the 2022 midterm elections, but those didn't turn out quite as some Republicans hoped for. I mean, the the majority in the House is very slim, and obviously the Senate is still a Democrat uh, majority. So, um, so do you think Republicans have learned the lessons from 2022? I hope so. And I, I will say, Stephen, uh, and, and if you know this, you were polite and not chiding me for it. I was wrong about my own forecast about 2022. So uh, thank you for your, your friendliness there. Uh, and I was wrong because I thought we would pick up 30 or 35 seats in the U.S. House. We just picked up a handful. The reason, best as we can tell at Heritage, and I, I I don't say this to say I told you so, that we don't exist for those moments, but it kind of feels that way. We were imploring. I personally was imploring the leader of the United States Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell, to work with then leader McCarthy on a contract with America. There's a very successful program that Speaker Gingrich had in the 1990s. McCarthy was all in to his credit. Heritage and other groups had messaging suggestions about how to nationalize the election against Biden. And McConnell refused. And McConnell refused because he's part of the establishment. So the number one lesson learned is it's sort of the same thing I mentioned as advice to British conservatives. Run on who you are. Run on how you're going to govern. And, and that allows conservatives to put in proper perspective an issue that was a real drag on, on some, some districts. And that was the wonderful decision in the Dobbs case to make abortion illegal pending state state review. And, and that obviously is an issue that has become a problem in some swing districts. It's a challenging issue, obviously, but it's a challenging issue politically when Republicans who are pro-life don't say what they believe. And what they believe is so much more reasonable and popular than what so many on the radical left want to do, which is to legalize abortion up literally to the moment of birth. We're encouraging pro-life candidates to talk that way. If those two things happen, and, and unfortunately, we continue on this trajectory in the United States of being weak economically, then I think it's, it has the potential to be a wave election. I'm not going to make that prediction, but I am going to say that I am far more hopeful than not about 2024. You mentioned foreign policy, and this is something that's a, a hotly debated in America in a way that it's not really talked about in the UK in the same kind of partisan way. Let's talk a bit about Israel and Ukraine. Now, I know that you're in favour of sort of um, separating those two issues in terms of funding in Congress. Why? First of all, because we can make a quicker decision to help Israel. And secondly, not to be sarcastic at all here, um, they are separate issues, very much related. Uh, there, there seems to be an emergence of an, a, a new axis of evil, uh, shall I say. But the, we have to get aid to Israel quickly because it is an imminent threat to them. To move on to Ukraine, in no way does that disparage the heroism of the Ukrainians or our very strong desire, obviously, that they prevail. But that is a tough vote in the United States right now. And I understand that our, our friends in Britain, including conservatives, don't quite understand what's going on in the minds of the American right. That, that's fine. But what's going on is that if you were in the United States today, especially if you were in Texas or New Mexico or Arizona or California, and you have been sitting there since the day Joe Biden was inaugurated and you had one of those little counters that American baseball umpires use, you would have ticked off seven million illegal aliens who've come into our country at the same time that our debt to GDP ratio is four times what it was in 1983, an unprecedented level. And you would say, as much as I want to defeat Putin and I want to, I want to help the Ukrainians, where in the hell is the money? And, and, and perhaps, I'm just speaking on behalf of everyday Americans, they would say, perhaps we can get there, we can, we can support this politically, which right now, just to be clear, they don't. But in order to do that, there must be more than four hours and 41 minutes of debate on the floor of the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Nearly $200 billion in, nearly two years in, we've still only had four hours and 41 minutes of debate in the United States Congress about what the strategic purpose is. The strategic purpose to us at Heritage is pretty clear. It's, it's clear to you, and I read The Telegraph every day. You know I'm a proud sus subscriber. But in the United States, there are competing goods in terms of policies at a time when the material resources are almost as strained as they've ever been in our history. And so all Heritage is saying is, let's have these conversations one by one. Ironically, we believe, if you have them one by one, you might get to a stronger consensus, even on the American right, about, strictly speaking, military aid to Ukraine, the right weapons, the right amount of money for them to defeat the Russians. We haven't yet done that as a people. And because we're going to put America first, even, even ahead of anyone else in the country, obviously the Brits and the Israelis are very close behind uh, that consideration. Um, 
heritage is going to keep everyone's feet to the fire. And, and the good news is when that conversation comes up, I think Speaker Johnson will have helped frame that in a way that the Ukrainians can get some additional aid. Heritage is in a place where we can support that if it fits our criteria of having a strategic end game, it being focused on the military, and very importantly, that there's real transparency about how the money's being spent. This is Americans' money. It's not the world's money. And therefore, let Americans go about the process of deciding how they're going to support this friend. Why is it America first policy to support Israel with uh, huge amounts of military aid, but not Ukraine? A few reasons. That's a great question. The first is, uh, other than the United Kingdom, they're our strongest ally in their history. Nothing against Ukraine. That's, that's not the case, just qualitatively. The second is that Israel has no neighboring country that is supporting them militarily. And so the need is even more urgent and imminent and dire in spite of the dire situation that I know exists in Ukraine. And the third is that we have for 75 years, both on the Democrat and Republican side of American politics, a very clear policy about supporting the Israelis, who, who by the way, are very reticent to ask for it. They don't come to the United States Congress, as some of Ukraine's allies have, and berate American conservatives for not getting it. That's not going to work in the United States. It wouldn't work in Britain. It wouldn't work in Kiev, right? People like to make their own decisions. The Ukrainians, of course, need to win. We need them to win. But the other thing is there are neighboring countries to Ukraine who love to wag their finger at America first conservatives that we aren't doing enough, who aren't pulling their weight. So to put a fine point on that, until our friends in Germany and France pull their weight, America first conservatives are going to be really reticent as it relates to Ukraine versus the almost slam dunk case that we can make every time for Israel. But as you said earlier, there is an opportunity cost in American taxpayers' money going abroad. And there are so many issues um, in the United States at the moment. You mentioned a few illegal immigration being one. Of course, you could have mentioned the huge amounts of overdose deaths and there, you know, there's a huge crisis um, among many American working class and middle class people, and there, there needs to be resources for them. So I suppose my question is, if you're sending a dollar to Israel versus a dollar to Ukraine, why is that more important than helping the American people with all these issues that they're struggling with? Well, the, the, the amount of, of the request is important. The, the bill that will be uh, taken up imminently in the US House to support Israel is something like 13 or $14 billion. We have sent officially $113 billion to Ukraine already. And, and, and we think by our estimates, it's really closer to $200 billion. Secondly, there has been, to the heart of your question, there's been much greater analysis over many years about what each of those dollars to Israel would get us. And thirdly, we believe that if Israel collapses, America's next. If Ukraine collapses, which we don't think will happen, part of this is the analysis is that they're going to be able to, to hold their own, even if, it, if it's a stalemate. There are other allies who will step in and stop it. Israel's demise is an existential threat to the United States. Ukraine's demise, as tragic and unjust and awful as that would be, is not an existential threat to the United States. It doesn't mean that we don't care about it. It just means they are qualitatively different as it relates to American national security. We would prefer, to be clear, to spend no money on either of them. Because our problems in the United States cannot be overstated. Fentanyl is the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 35. And that's a direct result of two policies. Joe Biden's open border on the South and our appeasement of the Chinese Communist Party. The second thing is, as you no doubt are aware, by 2028, 2029, two of our largest safety net programs will be on the verge of bankruptcy. Those, to, to remedy those, you get into a solution that's in the trillions of dollars. This is hard to say as an American. We don't have the money to do all of those things. And we haven't even introduced into this conversation. What happens if the CCP continues to rattle its sabers toward Taiwan? We don't have the defense industrial base to fix this. So our hope is that the 13 or $14 billion military aid package to Israel not only helps shore up Israel's Iron Dome defense in particular, but also is a real deterrent to any future aggression. It's the same reason we supported a package of similar size in January, February of 22 for Ukraine, because we thought that that investment of money would be a great investment because it would be a deterring force. If it was up to Heritage, 
Would Israel, you say Israel, uh, ideally Israel and Ukraine would get no uh, dollars. But if and, it was, and, and succeed and flourish. Right. And that so, have to so that's, that money that's, my, that's my question. If it was up to heritage, would any money go to Israel or Ukraine? No, up to, I mean, truly, and this is the ideal, right? We're so far from the ideal, not just talking about the particular conflicts right now in those two countries. We, we would send very little money overseas because people around the world would be self-governing and flourishing. You know this. As I say that, people will take those four words and they'll say the president of heritage is an isolationist because he doesn't want to send money overseas. That's not what he said. He said in an ideal world, Americans wouldn't do that because we could be focused on our people. At heritage, accounting for reality, we're comfortable with a certain amount of an investment, so to speak, by Americans' tax money overseas. But the other problem under this administration and under the Obama administration is that most of that money is used to advanced American leftist social justice programs. Uh, you, you know this some in the UK, but our friends in Israel and Hungary and Guatemala, all throughout Latin America, Africa know this, that they are at a point where they almost don't want to take the USAID support because of the strings attached to it. So we have, most of all, a lot of problems to fix domestically, and we're looking forward to our allies being able to hold their own so that we can really be focused on getting America fixed. Broadly, do you think that George Bush and kind of neoconservatives got it wrong over Iraq and Afghanistan? And do you think that you, you talked about isolationism? What do you make of that movement in the 1920s and the 1930s? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm a recovering neocon. And so I, I tend to be thoughtfully critical about the neoconservative movement. By that, I'm referring to the foreign policy wing of neoconservatism. There's a, a, a strand of neoconservatism that has some creativity regarding safety net reform that I think is, is really intriguing. But I was, I was a neocon at the time, supported the invasion of Iraq uh, using the preemptive doctrine. That's wrong, 100%, should never happen again. Uh, still respect President Bush, of course. But um, in hindsight, which we have the value of now, uh, those were those were trumped up accusations. Um, I still like to give people the benefit of the doubt. But in hindsight, we know that was wrong. And so what Heritage is saying, thinking about the somewhat isolationist movement of the 1920s and 30s, some of which was really tied into anti-Semitism, frankly, especially by the 1930s, we're rejecting both of those extremes. We're saying conservative American national security, going back to George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, has always been one of great restraint. And, and, and our friends in Britain know this best because we've, we've won a lot of wars together, that it takes a long time to get the American Republic ginned up for war. It's gotta be a really clear, justified war. Iraq was always a 50-50 proposition in American politics. It almost undid President Bush in his reelection. But secondly, when we go to war and Congress has declared war, it has to be total war. That our enemy knows they have never confronted a more lethal, well-resourced, publicly supported effort so that the war is short and the loss of lives are, is really small. We're so far away from that because of our own deficiencies in American politics. What Heritage is arguing for is a return to that. And whether it's a Democrat president or a Republican president who's articulating that, Heritage wants every piece of that because that's what it means to be a conservative in foreign policy. Now, I know that you studied American history. And I, uh, I wanted to end the interview by talking a bit about uh, history. I asked yesterday, Dennis Prager, who was the worst US president of the 20th century? And I'm curious to know what your response is. There are, unfortunately, a few potential answers, but Jimmy Carter, it accounts for a little bit of my bias uh, growing up as a young man in the 70s and, and then the 80s. But Jimmy Carter, as we can appreciate, unfortunately, today, because if history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Um, Carter and Biden don't grammatically rhyme, but they ought to. Uh, Carter was feckless. He was weak, a good man, um, virtuous, all those things, but weak on national security, terrible on the economy. And, you know, while not not a liar, he he misrepresented the problems in the country. And uh, thankfully, we got Ronald Reagan out of it. And it's the same reason that I think going back to one of your first questions, I think we're going to get our version of Reagan, whether that's Trump again or one of the other contenders in 2024. The American polemic Christopher Caldwell wrote a book called The Age of Entitlement. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about the uh, America in the 60s and, and sort of how he, he, he sort of says that um, 
a lot of the problems we see today in America in terms of uh, the culture wars and uh, wokeism and sort of the excessive liberalism in universities, etc., can be traced back to the 1960s and uh, federal legislation passed under Lyndon Johnson. And he also critiques uh, Ronald Reagan, and he says that those uh, that civil rights legislation that uh, Lyndon Johnson passed, which created a sort of separate and dual constitution to the original American constitution, um, was enshrined by Ronald Reagan. And he makes the point that Reagan's uh, immigration reforms in particular were a mistake in hindsight. He obviously invested more in uh, the southern border, but that ultimately didn't have much of an impact. So I want to ask, that's a very long-winded question, but I it's want to ask... a lot of that question, yeah. Stephen. Let's, let's talk about the 60s. Let's talk about Lyndon Johnson. Um, do you think that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the, um, and the sort of uh, other legislation that Johnson passed has led to many of the problems that we've seen today in American life? Yeah, that's an excellent question. In a lot of ways, this, this harkens back to my academic career as, as an early American historian who, who focused, as you have no reason to know, on African-American history, particularly servitude and, and the years following. But that leads me to, to this point. I have a different conclusion than Caldwell, uh, whom I respect. And that is to say, on its own merits, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was, as Martin Luther King said, the, the fulfillment of the promissory note, not just of the Reconstruction Acts and, and President Lincoln's personification of all those uh, posthumously, but also the Declaration. Having said that, in legal terms and in sort of the terms of jurisprudence, the Civil Rights Act has been used as the vehicle inappropriately by people who want to expand the notion of rights. And so the more we could get back to MLK's construction is this sort of narrative framing of this being about natural law and that each of us is created equally in the image and likeness of God, the better are we off. That's the appropriate way to understand the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because some of that text, as, as, as you may know, was taken from drafts of a Civil Rights Act in the 1860s by Republican senators of the Northeast. There's much more continuity there. Since then, especially some decisions by our Supreme Court in the last 10 or 20 years have inappropriately applied that act to expand rights in ways that the rights don't even exist. Do you think more broadly, American conservatives face a huge problem because they are um, in federal legislation um, they are up against a huge challenge where um, basically these liberal policies have been enshrined in federal legislation. Um, as I said, through this dual constitution, particularly perhaps Civil Rights Act, I don't know, other other legislation you could you could point to. But um, and the other point that Christopher Caldwell makes about the Civil Rights Act is that he says that um, it ends the freedom of association and it led um, into a large extent um, the sort of affirmative action policy. And, and again, we've seen I would say fairly negative uh, consequences of that. So, what do you make again of this of this idea that conservatives are up against a kind of legal challenge um, when they when they uh, are elected as politicians? They find they struggle to um, to enact conservative policies yeah. because they're up against the the judges, etc. Yeah, well, that's one hundred percent right. So, two things: number one, it's one hundred percent right. The good news on that, though, is if you read. Justice Alito's opinion in the in the Dobbs decision, even if someone disagrees with it or it doesn't doesn't care about the issue, you read that it is considered by legal scholars in the United States, perhaps the most finely written legal opinion in American history. It is a tour de force, not just about our American jurisprudence, but its source here in the United Kingdom. So, so there's there's hopefulness we're turning the corner there in large part because of the appointment of a slew of Trump judges. And so a lot more decisions in lower courts are going our way, but we haven't, we haven't won. And so conservative elected officials need to be cognizant of that. The, the, the second thing I would say though about Caldwell's uh, other part of his thesis is that his conclusion is correct, which is about the deterioration of the freedom of association. But I would argue politely that he's misplaced the diagnosis. And the, the, the real diagnosis needs to be not with the Civil Rights Act of 64, but with what came later. And that is, uh, for example, uh, Executive Order 10245, which is the so-called Affirmative Action Executive Order. I understand it maps back to the Civil Rights Act, but that, that's a political ploy and, uh, by Johnson. And then the second thing is more broadly, what the so-called War on Poverty, the misnamed Great Society. That's what, to get to the heart of it, misplaced uh, the freedom of association, it, it, it displaced it rather, and it put in that place government programs that make it impossible not just to, to, to take initiative, to recognize one's own dignity through work, but it has literally crowded out 
third-party providers to these services that are going to happen in any civil society in the West, yours, mine. That's the most pressing problem in the United States that conservatives need to fix. Talk about Lyndon Johnson, and <laughs> you mentioned, now I said before this interview that I'm reading a fantastic biography of him by Robert Caro, which everyone, a very famous biography, and you know, it's just excellent, highly recommend. One of the best ever um, written. Absolutely. Um, uh, and you mentioned earlier in this interview about politicians lying. Do you think that Lyndon Johnson changed the sort of political atmosphere in America in terms of the integrity of the office of, of, of the president? Uh, do, do you blame him or do you blame the kind of atmosphere in the 60s? Uh, both, but I, I, I do think you're right. I, I place the blame on him. And uh, he, he is, remains one of the most corrupt political leaders in all of American history. As an adopted Texan, I'll, I'll clean up the story about my grandfather used to say, and he was a lifelong Democrat, uh, my grandfather, um, he refused to vote for Johnson. He said he was so crooked he had to be screwed into the ground when he, when he died. That's my assessment of Lyndon Johnson. Um, and politically, he was god-awful. Um, and, and even more than the domestic policy politics, where that really began to happen is relative to the Vietnam War. And so during the, um, one of the offensives of, of the Viet Cong, President Johnson and his military leaders kept telling the American people that everything was fine. And this is as not just Americans are reading articles in 1967 and eight about all of these soldiers coming home dead, but they're actually seeing the body bags and they're going to more funerals in their communities. And the president's still doing these nightly speeches about how everything in Vietnam is going fine. That became dubbed by either the Washington Post or the New York Times as the credibility gap. That credibility gap got so bad for Johnson that, as you know, he decided not to run for reelection. Then that credibility gap got institutionalized. Republicans have their own version and Richard Nixon. But that credibility gap to the heart of the question has persisted and has become so profound that there are only a couple of institutions that Pew and Gallup polling organizations say Americans have, a majority of Americans have trust in. That is so dangerous. It's, I would argue, almost lethal for American civil society. And so it's incumbent on our next generation of leaders, not just to have a really aspirational policy program, but in a way that isn't sophistry, in a way that certainly isn't being duplicitous, to inspire people, not just to vote right, to support public policy that's right, but also to lean into their institutions because it's the deterioration of those that has caused the deterioration of American politics. There's a few other presidents I want to talk about before we end. Uh, Dennis Prager was very critical of Teddy Roosevelt yesterday, which surprised me, um, because he said that he basically led to Woodrow Wilson's election by running as a third candidate. How do you assess Teddy Roosevelt's legacy? Well, I do think that that, that ill-advised run in 1912 uh, tarnishes his legacy. But for the most part, I'm a huge fan of Teddy Roosevelt. There are a couple of exceptions. I think most importantly, even before getting into certain policy, he was the embodiment of the ideal American. Uh, this is, this is a, a young man who grew up well-heeled. He didn't have to go into public life. He didn't have to risk his life in, in war, which he did in Cuba. And he was, and secondly, being someone who's, who's an adopted son of the American West, he really captivated Americans' imagination about the West and gave us a sense of what the West meant for us, which in, in terms of the frontier thesis, which is very true in the United States, as you know, he showed that you could map public policy to that. And thirdly, because at Heritage we're conservatives and not libertarians, we love the setting aside in a reasonable way of some public lands, some presidents have abused this, he did not, for the common good. And, and I think he deserves tremendous credit for that. But the fourth thing I would say, which is so timely right now, is that he understood the, understood the importance, not just of American military power, but precisely of American naval power. No one on the planet would understand that better than a British audience. But why is that timely? Because it's dramatically expanding the US Navy right now, which the Heritage Foundation is calling for, that is going to be the deterrent against China. I wish we had Teddy Roosevelt today. Do you think that, uh Hoover's reputation should be resurrected. Absolutely. It's, Why? Look, he, he, he made some mistakes, um, including trusting the Federal Reserve in the middle of the presidential campaign. But Hoover, not unlike Roosevelt, 
was such a um, cultural and social um, icon for Americans. He was inspirational across the political spectrum and someone in terms of his biography who was, I think, the most prepared person to be president of the United States. He he allowed the media to, this is the first time the media succeeded in doing this, to misframe him as someone who didn't care about the plight of individual Americans. But as it turns out, if Hoover's policies had been continued, the, the Great Depression would have gotten deeper faster, but it also would have come to an end sooner. All the FDR policies did is prolong it. Uh, the, nothing that Roosevelt did ended the Great Depression. What ended the Great Depression was American war production to help out our allies in World War II. And finally, let's talk about Richard Nixon. Uh, he's a divisive figure amongst American, American conservatives. Uh, how, how do we rate him? Well, I remember what my mom said uh, on the day that, that, uh, that Nixon resigned the office. I was an infant and she was rocking me, uh, crying. She still, t still tells me this story. So I grew up in a family and an extended family that greatly loved Nixon because they saw him as uh, you know, being in that, that Eisenhower tradition of a cold warrior standing strong against our enemies worldwide, which he did. And yet they also understood that he was a flawed man. Therefore, uh, and you know, not dissimilar to our conversation earlier about Trump, on his policies, though, I'm a lot more critical. I think that conservatives in the United States today hearken back to Nick, quote unquote Nixonian conservatism at our peril because there's very little conservative about it. The creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, actually the continuation of some LBJ programs. That was a, a real a, a vicious debate inside. Yeah, great society. Real vicious debate inside the Nixon cabinet. He he went the wrong direction on that. And, and more than Watergate, I think he ought to be judged very harshly about that. Having said that, I was I was really glad as a as a, a, a political junkie as a teenager to see Nixon give a speech where uh, he was finally getting some gratitude for for being a great American and we don't need to be Pollyannish about those things but it's good to see these former statesmen at least be able to conclude their lives in a way that they know the country in spite of their mistakes was grateful for what the good that they did. I know I said that was the last question and it and it was but you said something interesting I want to follow up. You said you said he was a cold warrior and I just want to ask was McCarthy right? On the whole, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 got a, he went a little far in, in some of his accusations, but especially in hindsight, I think he was spot on. Thank you very much, Kevin Roberts, for joining us. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.